Take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Thank you, Pastor Dan and worship team. What a, what a wonderful celebration of the gospel through singing. And I pray that it's prepared our hearts as we go to God's word this morning. And we continue our study in the book of Colossians, Christ sufficient, Christ supreme. And today we want to look at verses 9 through 12. And the title of the message is simply the prayer for the church. The prayer for the church that Paul provides here in these verses. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read God's word. Verse 9. The scripture says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning I begin by just simply asking a question that I'm sure that all of us have wondered from time to time, and that is this, why is prayer difficult? Why is prayer difficult? Now, that depends. You may say, well, it's really not difficult, but I would suggest that it really depends how we actually think about what biblical prayer is and how it requires discipline, focus, and thoughtfulness, biblical thoughtfulness. And so if we're honest, prayer is not the easiest of spiritual disciplines for any of us. In fact, we probably all have laughed at those movies where the character botches a prayer at the dinner table. One popular Christmas movie that I'm sure most of you will remember uh, the aunt is there at the Christmas dinner, and the father is quite excited, Aunt Bethany, and she is asked to say grace, and at first she thinks that he is referring to grace, someone who has passed on 30 years ago, and then when she realizes that she's been asked to say the blessing, she leads the family in the Pledge of Allegiance. Most of us probably haven't experienced that level of confusion when it comes to prayer. In fact, most of us have probably just faced those situations where we try to help our kids as they grow up to pray for more than just thanking God for the day and to help us all have a good day in every way, right? But the challenge of prayer, really, if we're honest, is that we often do not know what to pray, especially when it comes to praying for each other. Our minds dance between the temporary things that we pray for and then things that we might perceive to be trivial or trite um, or we wonder, should we even be praying these things? But Paul here in this passage really helps us. And what he does is, is he helps shape our understanding of prayer with the gospel. 
And we see Paul move from verses 3 to 5 where he expresses to the Colossian church how thankful he is for them and for the gospel that has formed them. And then as you go down to verse 8, for the minister who has ministered to them, he then goes from gratitude to prayer. And in verse 9 he says, And so, from the day we heard of your conversion, of your salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you. So Paul presents himself as one who longs to pray, enjoys to pray, and actually knows what to pray. And he explains to this church that, yes, I pray for you. And that would be a wonderful encouragement to these believers because, one, they have never met Paul, and two, they are new to the Christian faith. So they're quite unaware of some of the dangers and some of the difficulties that very well lie ahead, and yet they're also aware of what they're already experiencing. And so as new Christians, this statement, I am praying for you, uh, I'm praying for you without ceasing, would be a great encouragement. His gratitude... His gratitude because of them leads to his prayer for them. Furthermore, he knew there were others trying to lead them away from the gospel. There were real threats that these believers were facing. There were people that had crept into the church that were trying to get get these new believers to leave the gospel or to add on to the gospel and in essence cover up the gospel and move on to other experiences. And Paul does not want that to happen. Paul knew as well that the gospel is God's gospel and that there is no salvation, there is no blessing outside of Christ. So his prayer shows us that really everything we need as believers is found in Jesus and the gospel and we, and he prays that they will realize that. This text, verses 9 through 12, informs our prayers for each other and other believers. And here's how. One key truth really drives all of these verses and here it is. We need to pray that we will be filled with the knowledge of God's will to please the God who has saved us. Uh, Another simple way we might say that is pray that we will be filled with the knowledge of the gospel. And you might say, well, I already know the gospel. No, but do you know, how much do you know about the gospel? Do we really know enough about the gospel? Do, do, do we ever, do we ever arrive at a certain place where we graduate from the gospel? And the answer to that is absolutely not. So Paul is saying, it, it is basically these verses are driving this key truth. Pray that we will be filled with the knowledge of the gospel because the more that we are filled with the knowledge of the gospel of what God has done to save us, then guess what? Then our lives will begin to please this God who has saved us. So there are three things that we're going to see in these verses. One, we're going to see the gospel petition of this prayer. Then we are going to see the gospel purpose of this prayer. And then we will see the gospel posture of the prayer. And those three things will help us as we pray for one another and for other believers that we know throughout the world. So let's look at the first thing. First, the gospel petition of his prayer. 
You see in verse 9, after he tells him, listen, ever since we heard about your faith, ever since we heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you. He says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, there it is. There's the driving petition. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So the first thing that we see in this petition is that he prays for the knowledge they need. That's the first thing. The knowledge that they need. Paul prays that they will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now let me ask you this question. What do you think the Bible means when it says God's will? And there's a lot of different things that people would say. Many Christians think that when we read the will of God or the will of the Lord or we're thinking about God's will, many people think that it refers to some specific plan for life that they don't know about or some specific detail or choice that lies in the future, right? What job will I have? What college will I go to? What person will I date? What what purchase will I make? You follow? A lot of people, that's what they think when they think of God's will. And so the the reality is, while it's not wrong necessarily to think about those things, here's the reality. That's not what Paul has in mind here. And let me just put as an addition to that, nowhere in the Bible are we promised that we that God will reveal to us any part of our future. The Bible doesn't doesn't promise that. So then that leaves us asking a few questions. Okay, then what is God's will, as Paul is referring to it? Who can know God's will? And how do we know God's will? Well, let's start with the first one. Because again, this is Paul praying for the knowledge they need. So if, you, if, if, if the knowledge they need is to know God's will, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, we want to know what is the will of God. Well, here, here's the thing. The will of God is his revelation of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the starting point. That's the starting point. Or or his saving purpose in Jesus. In other words, the will of God is the gospel. And then how we should live in light of the gospel. It's really that simple. Unless you know and believe the gospel, then you cannot and will not know the will of God. That's why we as Christians should never just go around telling, hey, you know what? God has a wonderful plan for your life. We ought to be starting with this question. Do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because you're never going to know what the God's plan for your life is or what God's will is until you first know Christ in salvation. Isn't that what happened here? What have they heard and understood already? Well, we, we've taken a lot of time to go through that, right? I mean, if you go back to verse 3, you'll read that they had heard the gospel and that they had understood the grace of God in truth. So that's what they already knew. And you know what Paul's saying? I just want you to know more of that. <laughs> and so they came to understand the gospel and the grace of God in truth. So, so ladies and gentlemen, let's just start with that, the gospel. Here's the gospel in summary. God created us. Our first parents sinned against him. Thus, we are all born with a nature that rejects God and rebels against him. And like our first parents, all of us have sinned. And because of that, we live in a world that is marred by death and all of us will die. Worse than that, we all face the eternal eternal judgment when we die because we are all guilty. 
And there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves or to make ourselves acceptable to God. But God has done something. (laughs) He has done something. He sent His only begotten Son into the world, conceived miraculously in in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And He was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfectly obedient life. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. He was buried in the grave and He rose again on the third day. And He ascended into heaven and He is seated at the right hand of God. And He will one day come back and judge the living and the dead. And by repenting of our sin and trusting Him alone to save us from judgment, we can be saved which means we can be forgiven of our sin and we can be made right with the true and living God. That's the gospel. So if you want to know God's will for your life, first ask yourself, do I believe the gospel? That's the starting point. And friend, that really in a nutshell, the gospel is the whole message of the Bible. Do you believe this? Because if you don't, then you'll never know the will of God for your life. And so these Christians in this church, you know, they didn't have a Bible like we have a Bible. So, 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 so they were reading the Old Testament and Paul tells them everything God wants them to know is first and foremost summed up in Jesus. And Paul was working to this end that they would understand that all knowledge of the will of God is summed up in Christ. Go to chapter 2. And look what he says in verse 2 and 3. He says, listen, I have labored that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Paul, what is the knowledge of God's mystery? It is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Thus, the will of God is for us to first know the gospel. Now, I realize the pushback. Well, wait a minute. So you're just saying that the will of God is just for us to know the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's not fully what I said. We begin with the knowledge of what God has done in Christ to save us. And then everything else is, how do I live in light of that? How do I live now that I believe that Christ died for me? How should I live now that I know He has risen from the dead? What is the will of God for me now that I believe this gospel? And the answer to that is everything that has been revealed in Scripture. We have the Bible that God has told us how we are to live now that we believe the gospel. So who can know the will of God? Well, anyone can know the will of God as it is clearly revealed in Scripture. And in this little church, there were already these false teachers that I mentioned that were saying, oh, yeah, 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 Paul and Timothy are right, but, you know, they don't know what we know. They don't have a YouTube channel. They haven't been on Facebook. So have you seen this video? Have you heard this information? Have you gotten this insight? Do you know, right? And so there's something else that these other people were saying, yeah, I mean, we know what Paul and Timothy saying, but they don't, they don't have the inside scoop. And the reality is if anyone comes and says that there is some secret that they have discovered, some hidden truth not revealed in Scripture, 
and is only known by a few super spiritual, super informed people, you need to run from them. Because once you receive the gospel, every Christian can know the will of God for their lives. And the will of God is open to all. And the will of God is what he has revealed in his word. Jesus is the central theme of this book. And every command in this book flows from the reality of knowing Christ as Savior and Lord. So how can we know the will of God for our life? Well, I've already said start with believing the gospel. But then beyond that, read the Bible. Because in Scripture, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Consider Psalm 143.10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. That doesn't indicate there's some kind of secret thing that about the future that we need to, you know, get a get a, a a special revelation about. No, it's saying, listen, God's will is clearly revealed in Scripture. Now, God, help me to do it. For you are my God. Think of what Paul writes in Ephesians five, where he says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, you know what's interesting is after Paul writes verse 17, do you know what the whole rest of the book of Ephesians is about? It's about family, marriage. It's about raising children. It's about working out in the world in the, and, and, and interacting in the community that you might live. So, so in other words, what Paul's saying is the will of the Lord and how you're to live, it is revealed to you. And he gives them a gospel manual on how to live in every sphere of life. What Paul is driving at when he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will is he wants the gospel and everything God has revealed in the Bible to fill us and take captive every aspect of our life. He wants the gospel to guide our thoughts, to control our affections, to design our purposes, and to make our plans. What is God's will for you? Name it. And the answer is, what does the scripture tell us? So he prays for what they need. And the knowledge they need is the will to know the will of God as defined by what Christ has done. But he also prays for the need of their knowledge. So not only does he pray for the knowledge they need, but he prays for the need of their knowledge because the whole the whole phrase says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, our knowledge needs wisdom and understanding from the Holy Spirit. Let me put it in the most practical terms. I'm a Christian. How do I raise my children? I believe the gospel. How do I, what is the purpose of marriage? And how do I love my wife? I'm a believer. What is my mission as I go out and I, and I labor and I work? What, 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 what is the real purpose of my vocation? You, you, you see, that's how practical this gets. It's, it's all in light of the gospel. And so that's what he means in verse 10 when he says, 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We need to be careful here because when the word, the word spiritual, what he's saying is wisdom and understanding that comes from the activity of God's Holy Spirit in our life. The Holy Spirit takes God's words, he illuminates what is written in the text, and then he roots it in our heart and he produces fruit in our lives. But here's the key. The key is, is that the Holy Spirit fills us with knowledge, granting us the ability to understand and wisdom to apply the truth to every dimension of our lives. So we begin with the gospel, we turn to our Bibles, and we pray that the Holy Spirit will work in each of our lives so that we will be pleasing to Him. So here's the, here's, here's the, here's what we take away from that. Pray that we will be filled with the knowledge of God's will in the gospel. Pray that the gospel will be, be, it will be bigger and bigger and bigger in each of our lives. Pray that we'll know more of his death, more of his resurrection. Isn't that what Paul said? That I may know him. May that be our prayer. And may we never leave him for something else. That's the petition. That's the request. That is the gospel petition of Paul's prayer. More about Jesus. He wants them to know. And then God's will for their lives in light of that. But there's a second thing here, right? And it all kind of builds together. So the petition of the prayer then just kind of rolls into the purpose of the prayer. Look at what he goes on to say. The second thing, the gospel purpose for the prayer. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. All right, now this is all one long sentence, so we're, we're trying to break it up like that. So, so, so let me just back up for just a second. What Paul's saying is, is that we haven't ceased to pray for you, and we ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and understanding from the Holy Spirit. And here's why. So that you will live a life that is pleasing to Him. And that you will walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. That first line, that first phrase up to the colon there. That's the purpose. So Paul goes on and he provides us the purpose of the prayer for knowledge. He prays that they will grasp the gospel and God's will. And when that happens, their lives will bear fruit. In, in other words, here, here's, here's the point Paul's making. Right belief will lead to, right belief will lead to transformed behavior. Sound doctrine will produce sound devotion. Gospel learning will result in gospel living. It's the nature of the gospel. It's the seed idea. The gospel is a seed and when it takes root in a heart, it will work. In people's lives. And it will result in gospel living. Living in such a way to honor Christ. So look how he states the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life. It is to walk worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to him. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 1? Doesn't it, doesn't it sound like Psalm 1? Where, where the psalmist says that he delights in the law of the Lord. And he meditates it upon it day and night. 
He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or, or sit in the seat of the scornful. But instead, what does he do? He meditates on the law of God day and night. And he delights in God's word. So, 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 so in other words, when you become a Christian, the goal becomes to please God. The gospel in the Christian life is really the antithesis of our culture's message. It really is. What's the, what's the culture's message? Self-autonomy. All right, this, this is like, this is one of the, this is one of the biggest words right now. I heard it constantly in education. Autonomy, 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 self-autonomy, bodily autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. That is the word. But the gospel, and of course, like everything, not, not everything that's said about that is necessarily wrong. But the reality is, is that the gospel is the antithesis of our culture's message about rights and body and identity and sexuality and all that goes with that. Because, the, because what the Bible says is, you are no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in what way? With your body. In other words, in every way. The whole dimension of your life has changed because of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's driving at here. He's saying that, I pray that you'll know the knowledge of God's will so that you'll live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. That you will live in a way that that honors the Christ who has saved you. This is seen in other places in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's, he's not saying, I, I, I want you to, to live in such a way that you earn your worth to God, but instead live out what you actually are now. What you are is you are saved, redeemed, purchased. You belong to Him. Now, by the work and power of the Spirit, live that out. So, so Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.15, a great verse. Listen, look at this. And he died for all. And those who live, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Well, then how do I live? There's God's will. How am I to live? For him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you see? Do you see this? You could summarize this by just simply saying that the whole point of life, now that we are Christians, is to live our entire life to magnify God who has saved us. And let that result in the good of, for the good of others. The goal is to please Jesus. I'll give you a snapshot of this. One of the most challenging things as a parent with teenagers is navigating social media. There are plenty of days you just wish it didn't exist. You wish we could just throw all of our phones in the fire and let it burn and go back to a day when so many things are at our fingertips. And so, and so... And navigating the, the social media, I, I, I was asked a question at one point in the past about using a particular platform. And so being the dad and I guess they would say the preacher that I am, 
I fired back in the text a question. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you want to worship Christ and seek to please him in all you do? Do you desire to embrace all the gifts of life, including phones, internet, sports, relationships, manhood, womanhood, marriage, sex, food, hobbies, and every good thing in life to love and honor Christ? Long pause and then came back. Actually, I just wanted to talk to my friends. (laughs) But then that, I put those out there because that became table talk conversation. Because that's the whole point. The whole point is, is that our aim in life, because Jesus has died and has risen from the dead, is that we want to glorify and we want to magnify him. And so whatever tool is in our hands or whatever thing that we're doing, the main objective in life is what he says. How can I please the Lord who has saved me? And and, and here's, here's the reality. No one has arrived in any of this. Okay, so that's not the point. The point is, there's a goal that is set. And so Paul states the goal, now that we're saved, is to walk worthy of the Lord and to please Him, whatever it is that we might be talking about. But then, he gives a snapshot of Christian growth. He gives us a snapshot of Christian growth. So he says, listen, the the, the purpose, the reason I'm praying this is so that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then notice the text. There's a colon. And then he gives a little list. And, And there's these verbs that end with I-N-G. And so all those I-N-G words are really just a, a snapshot, shot of what a life that pleases the Lord looks like. You ready? Here it is. Four features that he gives of a fruitful life that pleases God. And these are not, these aren't boxes you check. In other words, in every Christian, this is what's going on in their life. First, we bear fruit for the good of others and the glory of God. That's the first thing. Look at the text. Bearing fruit in every good work. Okay, so Paul prays for them that they will, that they will be filled with knowledge so that they'll please God. We bear fruit for the good of others and the glory of God. Paul indicates that good works are a result of the gospel taking root. Now he's already said that there's been fruit in their life. Remember earlier in the, in chapter one? And now he's praying for more fruit. Well, we, we had, we had fruit that he mentioned, faith, love, and hope. But now he's saying, I'm praying for more fruit. I'm just praying that the gospel will continue to transform your life. In other words, you got, nobody's arrived yet. So I'm just going to keep praying that the gospel will keep working and the Holy Spirit will keep transforming and that each and every moment that passes, you guys will continue to become more like Christ who has saved you. Isn't that how the Christian life works? We don't arrive. We just continue to grow. And we continue, and growing is painful and it's joyful. And so Paul just says, I'm just going to pray that the gospel, the more you continually understand, see that's how the Puritans were. All of life for the glory of God. I have this phone. What's this phone for? How do I glorify God with this phone? I mean, they were crazy about this. They'd go outside and they'd look at a tree and they'd say, look at a tree. How can, how can that tree glorify God? I mean, there's something to gain from that. 
Because we're so busy and we're so active and our minds are constantly moving. We don't step back and say, now wait a minute. What truly will, what truly will bring glory and honor and praise to the one who has saved me? That, that's what Paul's saying. So I, I'm praying that there'll just be more fruit in your life. And that fruit will be in the form of good works. So that brings a question, well, what are good works? And I love this. I read this this week. Good works are deeds done for the glory of God and the benefit of other people. As Christians, we can do that every day in just ordinary life. I think sometimes when we're thinking about good works, we're thinking like, well, what he means is that we got to sell everything and become missionaries. Well, that's not a bad thing. But there's plenty of good work that is done in the life of every believer in just ordinary mundane things. Martin Luther said that we glorify God by planning, plowing, and even changing dirty diapers. And he actually referenced men changing dirty diapers when he said that. But you know what Luther's point is? Luther's point is, is that we, we were created to glorify God. And, and, and so as Christians, we want to ask, okay, how can my life, what is the fruit of my life on a day in and day out basis? I went on to read this by Tim Challies in a book this week. He said, you do not glorify God only when you talk about him or share his gospel with other people or stand with hands raised in public worship. Those are all good actions, but they are not the only means through which you can bring glory to God. And he says, there is no task that cannot be done for God's glory that would not be considered a good work. Whether you're a student and you are studying hard and taking exams and, and you're doing a good work that glorifies God so that you can use what you learn to benefit others. Or whether you're a mom or a dad that's comforting a hurting child. You're doing good for the child and you're glorifying God in the same time. I mean, right, we could just go on and on with this, looking at vocation and just the ordinary things. But the point is, is that the gospel bears fruit of good works in our lives and changes the way we look at everything. But he also says that not only is a feature that we bear fruit for the good, uh, the good of others and the glory of God, we expand in our knowledge of God. Over time, we get to know God better and better through his word. Look what he says. He says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We begin to know God better through His Word. His purposes and His plan become more apparent to us as we grasp the Scripture in light of the Gospel. As we delight in Him, as we love Him, as we treasure Him, as He's revealed in the Word. And do you know the truth? Any Christian would be on, would honestly say this. We become better husbands and fathers, wives and mothers, neighbors, workers, pastors, ministers, when we delight in God. The greater we know the gospel, the more we know God through his word, then that has a, an effect on us that changes us. The Holy Spirit uses the word to grow us. And isn't that the truth? You don't see growth. In our old house, you just, you, we had these marks on the, on the, the door frame. We took a pencil and as they grew, we would just simply put a mark. 
So you'd go and you'd look at that mark and you could see how they grew. But, but at no point did we, could we look at them and see their, their cells developing, their bones growing, or other changes. You, you can't see it. What you see is the effects of it. And what Paul is saying, that's the, the, that's how the gospel works. The gospel expands our knowledge of God. The gospel bears fruit in our lives. But third thing he says is, look at it. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. We begin to depend on God's, on God for strength. In, in other words, God strengthens us with his power. What, what Paul is showing here is, is that all of this transformation, it is God working in us and then God working through us. Our ability to become holy and live the Christian life is not fueled by our efforts of morality or spirituality, but by the finished work of Christ. That's why he says, according to the might of his glory. In other words, the gospel is the strength for the Christian life. Ephesians chapter 6, which is not on the screen, says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What Paul is saying is, is that a feature of the Christian life that pleases God is a life that bears fruit, expands in the knowledge of God, and depends on God for strength. This we need. If we're going to be, if we're going to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and not the wisdom of the world, then we're going to need God's strength. For the challenges that face us today as Christians, we are going to need the strength of God. We cannot rely on our own ability, on our own strength, on our own wisdom. Consider the times in which we live. We will need, even this past week, with, with, uh, uh, seemingly from both sides of, uh, in the entire realm of politics, a complete redefinition of marriage, now embraced by everyone in the political system. Listen, uh, you say, well, why, why do you bring that up? Because we will need divine power to stand on the authority of the Bible, live distinct lives, resist the lies of the devil, and love our neighbors at the same time with the truth of the gospel. Now, that's why Paul says, listen, you can't look to yourself. You look to God. And you know what we look to? We look to the God who will, who will empower us according to his glorious might. Or in other words, he will empower us through the might of his glory. Now, isn't it interesting that in the next set of verses in the letter, he will provide us one of the most majestic uh, presentations of Jesus Christ? In other words, if you need strength, then you need to look to Christ. And look how great and glorious Christ is. Look to Him for wisdom and for knowledge and for all these things. But but the last feature here that I want to point out is, is that we endure with patience and joy. Look, look at the text. He says, after that colon, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, Increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy. So God gives us strength so that 
so that we will do amazing things? No. Show how strong we are? No. No, actually, God gives us strength just so that we'll endure. So that we'll just keep going. Isn't that how you feel sometimes? I mean, like, I I don't, my Christian life, most of the time it's just, I need to get through this day. I need to get through this situation. I need to get through this trial. And the Paul's point is, is that the strength that comes to us is enables us to endure. You hear people that will say, well, you know, sometimes I just don't want to, I don't want to continue. But Paul's saying it's not, it's not dependent upon us. It is the power of God's grace in the gospel that gives us strength to go on. Jesus doesn't abandon us. He supplies our every need. And He is the strength that we can endure not only to, to make it through, but so that as we make it through, we will also patiently demonstrate grace and truth to those around us. And that word patience has the idea of the right attitude. So notice here then, the purpose of the prayer is so that we'll understand the goal of the Christian life is to please Him and that we'll understand what a life looks like and what we're going to need more and more from the gospel. We're gonna, we, we need the, from, from, from the Spirit of God, we need fruit in our life, the knowledge of God, we need the power of God. And we need endurance with joy. So here's the truth applied. Pray that our aim will be to please Him and that our lives will continually be shaped by the gospel. So we've looked at the petition of the prayer. We've looked at the posture of the prayer. Now lastly, look at the, we've looked at the purpose of the prayer. Now look at the posture of the prayer. And then he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So here's the posture of prayer. Thankfulness. A thankful heart. You've already heard Paul say this. He gave thanks in verse 3. If you go to chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, he'll say that we hold, we receive Christ as Lord and we do so with thankfulness. In chapter 3, he'll say we sing hymns and songs and, 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 and spiritual songs. With thankfulness. In Colossians 4, he'll say that we should be thankful for one another. This is a a letter that is filled with thankfulness. And above all, our hearts should be continually giving thanks to the Father. A grateful attitude towards our God who has shown his love toward us. And how has he shown this love? Why do we have a grateful attitude toward loving Father? Because of the Father's saving action. Look at the text. He qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Isn't it crazy? Paul keeps going back to the gospel. He repeatedly repeats himself. Reminding people of who they were before salvation. Who they are now in Christ. And what they now have of Christ, because of Christ. He says to the Colossians, remember you were unqualified for God's family. You have no right to be here. None of us do. 
Paul understood this even in his own testimony. When he says he encountered Christ as one out of season. He considered himself the chief of sinners. His only explanation to the fact that he was a Christian was the grace of God. But just like the ancient Israelites, he was, he, God the Father has chosen us. He has qualified us. Another word is to make fit. He has fitted us for his presence. We were once not a people and now we are a people. We were once without mercy and now we have received mercy. He has qualified the unqualified. It's not a matter of being disqualified. It's a matter of we have no qualifications to be his children. But through his grace, he has made us his people. And so Paul says, listen, the posture of prayer is giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. So here's what we need to do. We certainly need to pray that we will all be filled with the knowledge of God's will. We should pray that as we are filled with that knowledge, that our lives will please Him. Pray for one another. You now have a way to pray for one another. God, fill the people of this church with a knowledge of your will. Fill us in such a way that we will please you in every way. And we ask this giving thanks for what you've done. So here's the thought in conclusion. Will you commit your life to Jesus Christ today? Maybe you're here today and you say, well, you know, I, I, I need to go back to the start that you said earlier. I don't even think that I'm a Christian. Then today, would you believe the gospel? Today, would you give your life to Jesus Christ knowing that he has promised to save you? And for those of you who are saved, who are Christians, will you pray for one another and for all believers in this way? That we will be filled with the knowledge of the gospel and that we will please the Lord? And today, will you lift your heart with thankfulness to the Father who has qualified you for heaven and has made you has given you an inheritance among the saints. Those are the questions that we should think about. And the way that we're going to respond to the message today is a little bit different. We're going to bow here in just a moment and we're going to pray. And as we have heard the preaching of God's word, let's prepare our hearts as a church. Every believer here who has been saved and baptized, for everyone that's a member of this church, let us respond by preparing our minds and hearts to do this, to observe communion at the Lord's table. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we come before you because Jesus came down from heaven and he dwelt among us in glory and in truth. We thank you that he came, God in flesh, to save us to the uttermost as man to die our death, to shed his blood on our behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for us. In him, you have given us so much that heaven can have, give no more. And we thank you, Jesus, for your willing obedience and unending love toward us. Holy Spirit, fill us now with a knowledge of your will revealed in your word. 
And even as we worship in this moment, may our worship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we observe this supper together, we pray that our hearts will be knitted together in love and that your name will be glorified. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.